From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's red flag law is supposed to keep guns away from people who may be a danger to themselves or others. But after three years on the books, is it working? CPR's Andrew Kenny's gone through hundreds of case files to find out. Plus, we'll talk about potential changes to state gun laws. Later, hundreds of astronomers are in Colorado getting ready to find the perfect spot to see an asteroid. And as Wakanda Forever joins the list of hit movies for Marvel, a CU grad who's in the film finds herself reveling in the moment. I knew that I had booked something and I knew that it was a big deal, but I didn't know what it was. Marvel is notoriously private, understandably. Actress Ava Arthur on her big break in a busy year ahead. I'm Diane Palaise, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. It was the car that both of my kids learned how to drive on. When it came time to get rid of the car because it made no more sense to repair it again, we took a vote and we decided to donate it to CPR. The process was really easy. We had to have our title, which we signed over, and the tow truck came and took it away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. If you worry that someone close to you is about to use their guns to hurt themselves or others, what you can do about it may depend on where you live in Colorado. CPR's public affairs team reviewed nearly three years of gun violence restraining orders to find out where they're issued, where they're not, and why. CPR's Andrew Kenny is with me now to discuss what he found in his investigation. Hi, Sandra. Hi. Before we get started, I want to learn, warn listeners that this conversation is going to include talk about gun violence, abuse, and suicide. Andy, will you go over the basics of what the red flag law is and how it's supposed to work? Sure. So these red flag, it's also known as uh, the Extreme Risk Protection Order Law, ERPO. And it's the civil process where a judge can order somebody to give up their guns for up to a year at a time and potentially multiple years uh, over time. And it also blocks those people from legally buying new guns as well. Hmm. And not just anybody can ask for these orders. It should. It really has to come from a law enforcement officer or somebody who's really close to the owner of the gun in question, such as a family member mm-hmm. or a roommate or a former you know, romantic partner, et cetera. And so it's a relatively new law, just about three years old now. And a lot of policymakers and gun violence researchers see big potential in it to prevent violence. There's lots of these coming up all over the nation, actually. Um, but here's how Professor Shannon Frateroli with the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions describes it. We're not waiting for the violence to happen. We're not waiting for, you know, you to be someone to be holding a gun ready to pull the trigger or say, let's intervene when they're talking about it, when there's you know, solid signs that this person is at risk and let's prevent this before it gets um, too close to harming people. So you're trying to intervene early, but it's also controversial because the whole idea is to take away a person's right to have guns before they actually commit a crime. So your investigation involved looking at nearly every case requesting a red flag order since the law went into effect. 
What were you seeking to learn? Well, we we started on this effort after the terrible Club Q shooting in November, and that case had raised a lot of questions about why law enforcement or family members of the suspected Mm. shooter didn't pursue one of these red flag orders. Um, You know, actually a year earlier, the suspect had been charged with kidnapping and involved in a standoff with police. Um, And it was generally an alarming case, but authorities hadn't tried to take away their guns permanently or hadn't hadn't tried to take away their guns for an extended period of time. So we realized that there's a lot we don't know in general about how this law is being used and whether it's working as advocates hoped and why not. So what we realized is we could get the case files for about uh, 360 of these red flag orders, mm-hmm. every one that had been filed up to the point that we started working. And I decided we would just read all of them with the help of our freelancer, Will Cornelius. And our goal was to see, well, who is filing them? And why are they filing them? And how are judges looking at them? How are they reacting? We mm-hmm. also reached out to people we found in the court files. And when they were willing, we talked to them about what happened in these cases. Uh, you mentioned the Why? What did you learn about why people and law enforcement agencies go to court to try to get someone's gun taken away? Well, these laws were originally written to address suicide. And we found that in a little less than, I mean, in other states they were, Mm -hmm. in a little less than half of these cases, there was concern that a person wanted to hurt themselves with a gun. And uh, that's, you know, again, the the idea has been that maybe we could intervene there. Mm-hmm. But lately, they've also been targeted more and more at violence against other people. And actually, in the strong majority of these cases in Colorado, the person was allegedly talking about hurting somebody else or maybe also hurting themselves and mm. somebody else. And then in a handful of cases, a few dozen, the person was talking pretty specifically about what I would call public violence, such as ambushing the police or attacking one of these, you know, grocery stores or public places. Um, And what we saw a lot of as well was domestic violence threats. Often a man who had a gun, it was almost always a man in these cases, about 90% of the time overall, Mm -hmm. and was allegedly threatening his spouse with it. Here's how one woman I spoke to described the fight that led her to file one of these petitions. She said her ex had a rifle and was really threatening himself and her. You know, I 100% believed it was going to happen, right? Like, I think that the the hope of, oh, we have kids together, right? We did love each other at some point. Like, like that's all out the window. You know, you could tell by, like, the tone in his voice, his eyes, like, the way that they looked, um, his entire demeanor, was so clearly psychotic. Hmm. Have you talked to a lot of people who filed these orders? Um, What can you say about them? Yeah, so we talked to people who either filed the petition themselves or who went to the police and the police helped them file the petition. And it was pretty similar to what we just heard. It was somebody who reached a point where they felt a really frightening and direct threat to themselves or to their loved ones. And they decided to try to do something about it. So once an order is filed, how often do judges grant them and take away someone's guns? We found that in all, judges have taken these petitions and issued a full one-year gun ban in about 170 cases out of the 360, 360 Mm. we looked at. So a little less than half the time. But when you look a little bit deeper, there are some really 
interesting and important patterns in terms of which cases actually succeed. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So as we talked about, these red flag orders or the red flag petitions can be filed by law enforcement or they can be filed by a personal relation, a private citizen, basically. And the data shows that if a cop or a sheriff's deputy files one, it's probably going to succeed way more likely than if it's just filed by a private citizen. So if a private citizen goes to a judge and says, hey, could you please take away this person's guns? That's only going to work about 20% of the time. Hmm. Comparison, again, if a police officer does it, that's going to end up resulting in a gun ban like 80% of the time. And we thought about it, and it does make sense. You know, police or sheriff's department, when they bring this case, they, they know how the law works. They know how the court works. They have lawyers to help them. Uh, they And the judge is probably going to trust a little bit more what a police officer is saying versus some random citizen. On the other side, you know, you hear from these people who try to do it on their own. They often don't have lawyers. They don't necessarily understand what a judge wants. And sometimes they, they might file irrelevant or frivolous or even malicious cases on occasion where they're kind of abusing the process. That that was pretty rare. But uh, I also, you know, I overheard heard from people who had tried to file these ERPO petitions as private citizens without help from the police. And they just said it was really frustrating and really difficult to do this alone. When you're reading about how to do this process, it says, you know, you have to file an ERPO at the court or, you know, with a judge. Well, what does that mean? Where do you go? Who, you know, how do you find that document? Do you go to your county or the county of residence where the person lives? You know, and when you're when you're like I said before, when you're just trying to get through the day and hopefully not get shot, it's, it's hard to try to figure out those little those those details. And by the way, that was a second woman. That was another person I talked to separate mm-hmm. from the one we heard from earlier. The other thing is that, you know, so you wonder why are these people trying to do this on their own when they when it's so difficult? And the thing is that in a lot of places, law enforcement is not really offering to help people like this woman. Really? Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. Well, we looked at all the counties and all the agencies, and, and we found that in more than half of Colorado's 64 counties, about 40 in all, police and sheriffs have actually never filed a red flag petition. They don't use this law. And even in some of the big counties, the populous counties like El Paso and Larimer and Weld, they've only filed a handful of these petitions. The cops have only used this law just a few times. And actually, there, that's it's really common, actually. Almost every department has only filed a few of these at most. The exception is the city of Denver, where Denver Police Department has actually a whole special team dedicated to ERPO, to the red flag law. And as a result, they're really pretty aggressive about filing these or pretty efficient, you might say. And more than half of all the orders granted statewide come from the Denver Police Department. Um, about 90 of those orders have come from Denver Police work. Uh, no other agency has tried anything like that. And it's it's just really remarkable because you look at like El Paso County, which has almost the same population, and the authorities there have filed two wow. red flag cases compared to, again, 90 in Denver. Now, what do you think explains that difference? Is it political? It's a, it has to be a little bit political, uh, philosophical even. You know, the authorities in El Paso County and a lot of other counties have generally said they, they don't like this law. They believe it's an infringement on gun rights. Again, you're taking away somebody's right, even though they haven't committed a crime yet. And so maybe the officers have just gotten the message that we don't really we don't really do this. Um, 
But I think there's more to it. I think in a lot of places, there may just be a lack of training and information, even in some of the metro counties surrounding Denver that don't appear to have any real objection to it. They're pretty liberal areas. They still don't use this law very often. Um, again, I talked with Professor Pro- Professor Frederoli with the Johns Hopkins Center, and she said that the biggest difference is that places like Denver have really intentionally decided to embrace this red flag law. They have invested in the infrastructure to make sure that people who are responding to crises as professionals know about extreme risk protection orders. They know when they can be a helpful tool and they know how to instigate that process, right? That's what's unique about these places where we see them being used. Okay, to review, both private citizens and law enforcement can seek red flag orders, but judges are more likely to grant the ones requested by police officers and sheriffs. Mm -hmm. And in many places, police officers and sheriffs don't seem to be seeking them. Yes. What else did you learn from reading all these files about how judges handle these cases? Yeah, so that's kind of the next question is once it gets in front of a judge, how does the judge react? The law says that there has to be clear and convincing evidence that somebody is a significant risk to themselves or others. And it names like all these factors that a judge can consider. Um, But it also leaves open a lot of room for interpretation because it's kind of an open question. Is somebody at risk? And judges treat it pretty differently. We saw some judges who would only grant an order if the person currently had guns, like literally had the guns and was ready to do something. Um, There was a potential suicide case where the man had given up his guns earlier to to family, I believe. But he said one day that if he still had them, he would have killed himself that very day. And a family member went and filed the petition. But the judge said, no, we're not going to do that because he, he may have said he would have done it, but he doesn't have guns right now, and he, he doesn't have a specific plan to buy one, and so he's, he's not a risk. And other judges probably would have granted that. And then there's also a lot of range in, you know, how far back in the past will a judge look to to, to see if you're a risk. Uh, one other interesting thing is that in Denver, there's one single judge who handles all these cases Uh, And she approves almost all of them. So police there know what to expect. In other counties, you might end up with a totally random judge. Now, ultimately, after reading through almost three years of these cases, Mm -hmm. did you come away with any sense of whether this law is saving lives? Which, of course, is what supporters have said is the intention. You know, it is, it's still new, and we're still looking at just a couple hundred of these cases, a few hundred. And it's, it's impossible to say statistically, like, what the difference is. Um, and we'll never know what would happen in any one situation, what would have happened. Um, but in some of these cases, the the threat is pretty clear and pretty frightening. And when I talked to Professor April Zaoli at the University of Michigan, who studies laws like this in multiple states, she said there's pretty compelling statistical evidence that they already already that they help reduce suicides in particular. There was actually a Duke University study that found that for every 15 of these orders, a suicide may be prevented. Right now, I'm confident in ERPO's potential, but we need more research to determine if that potential has been reached. And she says there's a lot more research needed, in particular, on acts of aggression against other people to find out what the effect is. There's lots of interest, and I think that there's going to be plenty of pressure and scrutiny, and we'll see over the next year or more what else happens with this law. 
Wow. Fascinating information. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Chandra. That's CPR Public Affairs Editor Andrew Kinney, who's been investigating Colorado's red flag gun law. When we come back, the new gun legislation lawmakers may consider this session. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Throw a dart at a map of the American West, chances are a Chinese community once lived there. So writes author Tiao Lim Gong. The Chinese ended up in many small rural places. We've chosen her shimmering new book, Western Journeys, for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Get a copy and meet the author in a virtual event February 23rd. Free tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. With support from Shining Mountain Waldorf School. We were just talking about how Colorado is doing at implementing one of its biggest recent gun laws, Extreme Risk Protection Orders, also known as a red flag law. This is at the this as the as the state legislature is preparing to possibly debate even more changes to gun policy. Now, another member of our public affairs team joins us to joins in this discussion. Benta Berklin joins us now from the state capitol to walk us through that. Hi, Benta. Hi, how's it going? What's the biggest thing lawmakers are talking about doing this year? One of the ideas that would certainly attract a lot of attention hasn't even been introduced yet, and it would ban the sale, purchase, importation, or transfer of so-called assault weapons. Now, this would not apply to police officers, members of the military, or people who are authorized to have an assault weapon for their job. Democratic Representative Andrew Basenecker is from Fort Collins, and he would be one of the main sponsors. And he said this is the first bill he drafted before lawmakers even came back to the Capitol. And he said he wants to introduce it because he thinks it will reduce mass shootings. And he said, quote, enough is enough. I take my kids to school, drop them off at school every day, and really just couldn't abide the situation anymore of wondering what might happen between the time I say goodbye in the morning and when to pick them up in the afternoon. So there was a real sense of obligation that I had, and quite frankly, privilege as being one of the 100 people in the state that could pull a bill title and to really have this conversation around assault weapons in the state of Colorado. We've just seen a draft so far because nothing has been introduced, but As I mentioned, it's already generating a lot of talk and opposition about how effective this would be, because as it's drafted, it would not ban the possession of assault weapons. And also people could still purchase assault weapons in neighboring states. Now, what can you say at this point about what it might cover? Since it's in the early stages, you know, things can change a lot throughout this process. But in the draft that's circulating, stores and individuals couldn't sell or transfer guns despite the exceptions. And the bill defines assault weapons as a firearm with a detachable magazine or a firearm that could easily be modified to accept a detachable magazine. And then one of the following features, so features like a pistol grip, a flash suppressor, a barrel shroud, and then it lists some other features as well. Have lawmakers ever introduced a bill like this before? Not that I've seen, and I have been covering the cattle you know, more than a dozen years, so a long time. It's been mentioned in the past, uh, most recently after the mass shooting at the Boulder King Supers, but lawmakers instead decide to give local communities the authority to ban assault weapons. They did not pursue that statewide. And Democrats have been somewhat cautious because it's clear a bill like this would have major opposition. There could be electoral consequences, but also 
introducing something like this takes a lot of energy and time to debate at the Capitol. And that could also influence discussions on totally unrelated policies. And what are our opponents saying about it? They argue that these types of bans are unconstitutional and would essentially try to ban the most common types of firearms people buy for self-defense, recreation. But opponents I've talked to also see this as a messaging bill. They don't think it'll be effective because Coloradans could buy these types of assault weapons in our surrounding states and bring them to Colorado. Republican Representative Gabe Evans is from Fort Lupton. He served as a police officer for a decade. And he says he just doesn't think other gun laws the state has passed, like universal background checks, the red flag gun law, high capacity magazine bans. He doesn't really think it's made the state safer. He doesn't think an assault weapons ban would do so either. With the limited time and resources that we have, I would much rather have a conversation about how do we actually get criminal acts under control in our communities rather than having this politically charged conversation about something that really isn't going to make our communities safer. Benta, are Democrats proposing anything else? Yes, there are a number of possible bills in the works. Uh, They want to expand the state's red flag gun law to allow more people to file those petitions asking the court to temporarily remove someone's firearms. Democratic legislative leaders have also mentioned trying to enact a waiting period for all firearm purchases, increasing the purchasing age for some guns. There's some other measures potentially in the works, but none of these pieces of legislation have been introduced yet. Thank you, Benta. Thanks. That's CPR's Benta Berkland talking about potential gun legislation at the state capitol this year. When we come back, an asteroid expedition that could reveal new secrets of the universe with artifacts far, far away. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Look around as you drive and you'll see that Colorado has many different kinds of license plates. I really like the uh, American Indian Scholar plate, uh, the American Horse plate, the Rocky Mountain National Park plate. But how many specialty designs are there? And which one is the most popular? Find out on Colorado Wonders, Monday on Morning Edition and All Things Considered, here on CPR News and at CPR.org. Nearly 200 astronomers are gathering near Longmont today to prepare for a journey of discovery. They'll leave Thursday or Friday, depending on the weather, and stop, well, somewhere between Kansas City and Detroit. Once they pick a spot, though, things will get a little more precise. They'll place their telescopes in a long line, point them upwards, and look for an asteroid and its tiny satellite hovering near Jupiter. As the folks at NASA recently wrote, it'll be like trying to find a quarter on a sidewalk in Los Angeles while trying to spot it from a skyscraper in Manhattan. John Keller, who heads CU's Fisk Planetarium, is among the space explorers. He spoke with my colleague, Michelle Fulcher. John, tell me about this asteroid, Palomil. What's it like? Palomil is one of many Trojan asteroids that are in a region of our solar system out by Jupiter. It's actually a very old asteroid from the very origins of our solar system. And NASA's flying to this object plus five other targets in the Trojan belt in 2027. Because we think that this region of the solar system where these asteroids are uh, parked are going to give us a place to go look at 
the ancient origins of our solar system because they're really artifacts from the very beginning of our solar system four and a half billion years ago. Let's talk a little bit about the logistics here. Yeah, we're assembling 180 astronomers and citizen scientists in Mead, just outside of Longmont. Um, They're flying in from all over the country. They're also coming from CU Boulder, where I teach, as well as other parts of the Front Range. And they are basically individuals anywhere from age 18 to 80 who have um, an interest and passion in helping us measure these objects out by Jupiter. You're going to be making really precise measurements of something that is how far away? <laughs> Polymule and its satellite Sean are out by the orbit of Jupiter, which is about 500 million miles from us. It takes light to actually almost half an hour to travel at the speed of light from Polymule's distance to the Earth. So what are these scientists trying to find out about this asteroid and its satellite? The main reason that we are assembling this large of an expedition is that Lucy, the NASA Lucy spacecraft, is going to fly past Palomil in 2027. The measurements we're going to make Friday will give us precise positions on where these two objects are in the solar system that will significantly help the mission planning team, one, avoid smashing into either of them, because uh, that's important that the spacecraft actually flies by, yes. doesn't become a stopping point. And second, it'll help us get the most data out of the mission, because the Lucy mission can point the instruments as precisely as possible to maximize the return on the on the data that we're getting back. You can imagine pointing your camera, flying past an object, going many, many tens of kilometers per second, and not flashing the shutter at the right time if you didn't know where it's going to be. And so we need to get this precise positional information to better plan out the mission. Why do you have to go at this particular time? Yeah, it's a really unique opportunity this Friday night when the shadow of Palomil and Sean, its satellite, are going to pass in front of a particular star. We know where the star is. We think we know where they are. We can predict where that puts the shadow of that asteroid onto the surface of the Earth. And we are intentionally trying to place telescopes lined up in that shadow path. This is called occultation science. Um, The word occult means to hide. And so essentially the asteroid is hiding a star. We'll be pointing our telescopes at a particular star. For those telescopes that are in the shadow, when that alignment occurs, those telescopes will actually see the starlight blink off. It'll disappear while it's being blocked. And then it will blink back on when the asteroid has finished passing by the star. Basically, the asteroid is going to block the starlight with its shape. Um, And those telescopes that measure that give us precise timing measurements to figure out how big it is, what its shape is, and exactly where it is in the solar system. And the discovery of Sean, which is this satellite, is pretty new, right? Yeah, Sean was discovered through the same type of campaign roughly a year ago, back in March of 2022. It was a much smaller operation. I think we only had a dozen or more telescopes involved, but we were trying to measure Palomil, and two of our telescopes happened to notice a second blip, a second shadow, a second star blinking on and blinking back off. It was actually less than a fifth of a second, like it was like less less than a second blip, but those two measurements confirmed that there's a satellite orbiting, a, a moonlet if it was, it's only two kilometers big, but a moonlet orbiting around Palomil. Tell me how much that complicates 
NASA ultimately with this Lucy mission trying to get to this asteroid, right? So now they've got two different bodies out there in space that they're trying to deal with. The NASA mission was already planning to fly as close to polymeal as it could so that it could get as much data as it can from that flyby. This whole encounter is going to happen in less than an hour as the spacecraft flies by both of them. But understanding Polymeal's position and Sean's orbit around Polymeal will help us know exactly where we can fly and can't fly to maximize that result. It's also named Sean, just so you know, after Sean the Sheep, right, from Wallace and Gromit. Oh, my. <laughs> and actually, technically, it's nicknamed Sean. It isn't officially named Sean. That's not going to pass the International Astronomical Union test. But we're nicknaming it Sean because it's a, you know, it's a little sheep. It's a little, little sheep that's following along Polymeal. Why is this named the Lucy mission? The Lucy mission um, is named after a discovery of, a, of an early hominid uh, in Africa that has been nicknamed Lucy. The NASA Lucy mission is going to be studying relics of the early solar system, just like the Lucy in Africa, the Australopithecine Lucy, is a relic of early humans. So we're naming it based upon the fact that we're doing archaeology of the solar system. That's kind of a romantic idea, right? Going back to the very early, early stages. You know, kind of put that in the context for me of we're on the ground in Kansas or wherever you end up going, trying to find out about something so ancient and so far away. It's awesome to be able to have a group of humans sitting on our planet today, knowing exactly where to be to watch a shadow of an object that was made 4 billion years ago pass over your telescope. Lucy was a hominid 4 million years ago, and right, we can look at the history of humans and hominids, which is in like a 4 to 5 million year time frame. We're doing, with this mission... We're studying objects that are billions of years old, four and a half billion years old. And so now tell me about these humans. And let's start with what you don't know, which is where you're going, right? Yeah, so we we have a prediction of where the shadow is going to track over the United States. It starts up in Detroit and it comes down through southwestern Kansas and it actually continues through New Mexico and into California. But because it's so early in the evening, there's will be too much sunlight to be able to do any science further west. We therefore have to be somewhere between southwestern Kansas and Detroit, Michigan. Ideally, we'll be right around Wichita. We'll be a little bit southwest of Wichita. But if it's cloudy there, we can't get data through clouds. So we'll travel a little further east, maybe Kansas City. If it's cloudy there, we'll travel further east, maybe towards Indiana. If we have to go there, we may have to get all the way to Michigan. We're basically going to drive as far as we need to drive so that we can guarantee that we're under clear skies. And this will be at what time of night? All telescopes have to be assembled and on the sky by 7.39 Central Time on Friday night. You don't want to miss the party. Put this in context for me compared to the size of other similar expeditions. This is a really big occultation expedition. We typically have about 12 to 30 telescopes with maybe... 12 to 80 people involved. For this campaign, because of the details of trying to catch that little moonlit, because it's so small, we actually need 90 telescopes to guarantee success. Uh, technically we need hundred and we have other volunteers from across the country who are still gonna join us from their home locations to give us um, an additional 10. And so um, to have hundred telescopes and 200 people involved 
is is really, really big. John Keller is director of the Fisk Planetarium at the University of Colorado. He spoke with my colleague, Michelle Fulcher. This week's asteroid tracking trip is led by Southwest Research Institute. When we come back, a CU grad makes it big, starring in the Black Panther sequel, Wakanda Forever. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio, called Terra Firma, brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. The sounds in nature are like the voices of friends. I know when I hear the first robin every spring what that means. The sound of wind in trees, the bugle of elk. Those are the memories that become the soundtrack to our lives. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. Wakanda Forever, the sequel to Marvel's superhero blockbuster Black Panther, is poised to cross the $1 billion mark at the global box office once it's released in China next month. And it's already made more than $800 million worldwide. That's no small box office feat. One of the act- actresses basking in its success is University of Colorado graduate Abba Arthur, who stars in the film. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So you are a CU grad. So my understanding is that you grew up in Washington, D.C. and always had an appreciation for the arts. What drew you to CU and what was your time like in Boulder? Well, I was actually born in Washington, D.C. and then my family moved to Colorado when I was very young. So I grew up there. I grew up in Colorado Springs. That's Mm. where I went to high school. Yeah, I went to high school in Colorado Springs. Shout out to Rampart High School. Go Rams. (laughs) And CU, I had a sister who was a senior at the time. And, you know, in-state tuition, it seemed like the best idea. I didn't want to go to college in general. Let me make sure I say that. I was ready to go to L.A and start Mm. doing the things. Yeah, I was ready. But it was the best decision of my life to take that time. I matured not only emotionally, but professionally, because that's where I first started acting. You earned a degree in acting and political science and co-created a dance troupe called BAM, Bust a Move. That's correct. That's correct. (laughs) That sounds fun. So tell us about that. What was your experience like? Oh, wow. I have so many great memories from CU. I made the best friends who I still have today. We used to do so many things. I mean, I have such fond memories of the football games. Shout out to Coach Prime. Can we put this in there, please? (laughs) Shout out to Coach Prime. Welcome to CU. You know, I thought I should ask you about that. I thought you'd have some strong feelings about that. Yes, (laughs) Yes, I have very strong feelings about it. I'm really excited about it. I think we all are. So yeah, the football games are such fond memories. Um, Of course, BAM, which I co-created with one of my closest friends, Stephanie King Thompson. We used to dance at every event we could possibly get into. So many, so many things, so many house parties. I was very active in a lot of student groups and the Women's Resource Center. So You know, I I just have a lot. It was very formative. I have a lot of memories of spending a lot of time hanging out and also some really difficult times. You know, there were a lot of protests. We did a lot on campus and it just grew me as a person completely. And I also heard that you had a professor at CU that was pretty pivotal in your career. Oh, 
Oh, yes, I did. Cecilia Pang is her name. Um, wow. I just, I could talk about her for hours. I mean, that, that woman actually, she changed my life. And she really kick-started. The talent has always been there. The drive has always been there. Those things I think I was born with. What she did is that she taught me how to channel it. Everything. And I learned how to be a professional actor from the inside out, through and through. Um, the, The challenge that she gave me was something that I needed to be who I am today. So I'm eternally grateful for her. She knows that. <laughs> but every time I can say her name in public, I will, because I'm, I'm so grateful. So definitely deep ties to see you. So Yes, yes. So Wakanda Forever, the film stars Angela Bassett. It also has Letitia Wright, Lapita Nyong'o, Denai Guerrera, Daniel Kalula, and most of us remember him from Get Out, that mm-hmm, movie. Mm-hmm. A lot of big names. So Bring us back to the day you found out you had made it into this film. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Let's go back there for myself, too. Um, (laughs) So I I knew that I had booked something and I knew that it was a big deal, but I didn't know what it was. Marvel is notoriously private, understandably. Mm. And so there was little information beforehand about what exactly was going on and how. I just, I knew I needed to get to a fitting. I knew, you know, there were some technical things that I needed to do to get ready. And so I I actually found out while I was at my fitting. And it was a massive shift in my body, as I'm sure you can imagine, finding out something like this, because you learn that you're going to be in the film, but also I'm working. So the level of focus that I had was really sharp. So I didn't have time to fall out and, you know, call people and be excited about (laughs) it. No, it was, okay, this is what we're doing. This is what I have to do next. This is what I have to do after that. And everything was in order and I just had to go. So I didn't really have a lot of time to sit in it, but I'm grateful for that because I think if I would have, you know, it's daunting. (laughs) I would have sat and really thought about it. It's it's a little bit daunting, but yeah, that was the beginning. As soon as I found out, I was at work. Wow. (laughs) Amazing. So in this sequel, you play a naval engineer. Tell us about that role. And of course, uh, no spoilers for those who haven't seen it. Sure. Yes, I play a naval engineer without saying too much. My job is to control the ship. I'm in charge of the ship. That's all I'll say. (laughs) Now, what was the most challenging part of playing this role for you? And what was the most fun? I would say the most challenging part was really what was happening internally. Stepping onto the set especially in the second installment of something that is this large, you know the heels of the people that you're stepping up behind. And Mm. so it was a matter of control of emotion. I think that that was probably the hardest thing is, you know, you walk into Wakanda, but again, you're at work. You have to act accordingly so that we can have a good product. You know, we're, we're shooting a film. And so for me, it was really important to be able to get my mind right, 
focus. You know, when you get back to your trailer, that's when you get to kind of exhale and be like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking the whole, you had to kind of keep the fangirl thing on the down low. <laughs> Thank you. Until you Thank got in the trailer, you. you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Thank you. <laughs> I just Thank can't believe you. I just did that. That. Is exa- <laughs> that is exactly correct. I'm a huge Ryan Coogler fan. I mean, really, who isn't? Who isn't? But I'm a yeah. huge Ryan Coogler fan. I I study his work. I always have. So to be able to really receive direction from him every day, I mean, I, I certainly was fangirling in my heart. <laughs> so it but sounds yes. to me like your the hardest part was being in the movie and the funnest part was being in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly correct. Yeah, the hardest part was controlling emotion and doing what you're supposed to do and getting it done when you're supposed to get it done. And then the funnest part, yeah, was exactly the same. <laughs> Being in the movie and doing what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. You're right. It's, it was all wrapped up in one. And of course, most of the people that were on set for the film were in the first film, but you yes. had not been. So what I heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Lupita Nyong'o had to teach you the Wakanda Forever, the, the famous Wakanda Forever salute. Is that true? That is true. Lupita was such a dream. She's so lovely. What a wonderful human being. And as you mentioned, I mean, I'm coming in fresh and new. So there was a lot I didn't know. And no, I did not know how to do it when it came time <laughs> to do it. I mean, we've all seen it, but it's different when you're in the movie and you have to yes, do it. You have correctly. to do it. Absolutely perfectly in the movie. If you're in the movie, you have to do it yes. technically correct. I can't correct. embarrass myself and everybody. I know you have to do it correct. And so, yeah, Lupita pulled me to the side and she taught me how to do it correctly before it was time to start shooting. I will forever be grateful for that. Can you imagine? Can no, you imagine? I, I, I literally can't. <laughs> I'm just thinking, oh, the pressure. <laughs> yes, exactly. But again, with people like her, and Ryan Coogler, I mean, Ruth Carter, Academy Award winning Ruth Carter, who fit me. The fact that they welcomed me with such warmth and open arms, it allowed me a chance to be able to relax a little bit and settle into it. So all of those little moments on set were really, really helpful. And I'm so appreciative. So, of course, Wakanda Forever is part of the long-running Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now that things have kind of calmed down a little bit, and obviously the the film has been filmed, do you still have those moments like, wow, I cannot believe I was a part of such a huge cinematic moment? Um, Yes, all the time. I'm still processing it. I'm having it now as I'm talking to you. I'm so excited about it, and I always will be. That is a moment in history where I was able to be a part of creating something that will last always and hopefully impact generations. I'm going to be chewing on this, I'm sure, for the rest of my life. Absolutely. Understandably. So the original, of course, was a breakout role for the late Chadwick Boseman, who unfortunately died of colon cancer before the sequel could even be filmed. And I'm just curious, was his presence felt on set, although obviously he was not there for this filming? How did his presence affect what was happening in this sequel? Absolutely. So... 
for myself, I was really conscious that I was stepping not only onto a set, but also that I was going to be with a lot of people who were grieving really strongly. And so it was really important for me to be able to know my place and also hold space. Um, he was very present in everything. His name was brought up so many times. Ryan Coogler, such an incredible human being. He was also able to honor him, even in his speech and direction. He was a part of the project through and through, 100%. Yeah. One headline I read about you said, quote, Colorado grad lands in biggest movie in the world. <laughs> this is a literal headline that I read. And I'm like, talk about top billing. How does it feel to be acknowledged in that way? Oh, so special. I mean, like you asked if I still, I don't remember what exactly your question was, but I'm still chewing on it. I I knew that the movie was going to be big. It's Black Panther. Obviously, I'm a fan. So I was going to go see it anyway if I wasn't in it. <laughs> I think that it's been it's been such a lovely surprise. It's been so wonderful the way that everybody has received my role in it. Because to me, I was just happy to be able to do my part to make this film happen. So to just see how everyone has really received me and to see how excited everybody has been about my part in it, that's been so special. I'm, I'm just, I'm so grateful for it. And I have so much coming up. Like there's a, there's a full slate, thank God for me for 2023. So I'm just glad that everybody's like here with me now. I'm taking Colorado. I'm taking CU. I'm taking, you know, everybody that's been a part of this journey. But um, I, I, I'm grateful for the way everybody's received me. It's been wonderful, really wonderful. So the movie debuted in November 2022. And just after opening weekend, a special screening of Wakanda Forever was held in your honor at the Regal <laughs> UA Denver Pavilion Cinema in downtown Denver. <laughs> Who was there and what was that like? <laughs> oh, yes. You know... It's funny. I actually wanted to do something really small. Initially, I was thinking, oh, okay, for family and friends. And then as the film was coming out and I realized this is going to be something that is bigger than what I thought, you know, a, a little small screening for just us. I wanted to invite anybody who had interest in anybody who wanted to be a part of it. And so my production company, The Ohama Project, we did produce the screening. Um, it was filled with close, my closest friends, my friends from CU came out. I'm so grateful to them. And of course, they brought loved ones and friends. And thankfully, we had some press that was there and people, you know, to have conversations with me. And so it was a magnificent afternoon. I'm actually really excited to continue doing this. And I want to make sure I say that because the arts in Colorado, I mean, that is a very, very large part of my heart. I was a student there and I, I grew up there and I would have died to go to something like this. And so I want to be able to make sure that I'm coming back and I'm also able to bring events and do things surrounding the arts that another ABBA who is 17 and 21 who's in Colorado can come to and see, oh, this is possible. I can also do that too. 
Now, Wakanda Forever and just the whole Black Panther franchise is about so much more than just superheroes. It's about representation. It's it. This particular sequel has a lot of themes in terms of women, empowering women, and also Indigenous people and, and African-Americans. And so I read a statement that you said that this film will be so important because of its massive and cultural impact, not just mm-hmm. in the United States, but globally. What are your thoughts about what is that impact? Oh, can I tell you, I remember so clearly sitting in the first film, and I'm sure a lot of us had the same feeling. Being in the U.S. and growing up in the U.S., as we all know, the images of Africa and Africans have not always been great. And so for me personally, sitting in the theater, there is that one scene where they zoom out and you see all the different tribes on the rock, you know, when they're getting ready to battle. And I just burst into tears. I remember that so well in the first film because I had not seen in my lifetime a representation like that of us. So it's personal to me. It's not just about, okay, you know, obviously there is impact. And obviously that is the point in general, I think, of art. Like that's that's what we aim to do as artists. This one hit home. This one hits my heart. So I'm just so excited for everybody to be a part of it. And when I say everybody, that's why the word global is so important. Let's talk about the global impact. Because as you mentioned, there are a lot of communities that connect to Black Panther, the first and the second film, in different ways. And Mm. I know I do. I know mine does. So yes, yes, yes. Everyone. Global. Global. So Ava, what's next for you? What are you working on now? Thank you for asking. It's a busy time. It's a very exciting time. I have a television series that I recur in called Bad Monkey. It stars Vince Vaughn and it's coming to Mm. Apple TV. Also, I recently wrapped on a feature film called Freedom Hair. That's about the the Black woman who created the first natural hair braiding salon. And she had to go to the Supreme Court. She fought a lengthy battle. Her name is Melanie Armstrong. Freedom Mm. Hair is a film about her life. I'm really grateful to be a part of that. And then we wrap up the year with The Color Purple coming to theaters December 2023, which I'm just thrilled for the world to see. Um, All of that is happening and I'm sure there will be more. So just stay tuned. Obviously, there's some things I can't necessarily talk about yet, but stay tuned. Let's ride this journey together. I'm excited. Well, it shows. <laughs> Abba, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us on Colorado Matters. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm grateful. Abba Arthur graduated from CU Boulder in 2005. She plays a naval engineer in the blockbuster Marvel movie, Wakanda Forever. That's all for Colorado Matters today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield on CPR News and KRCC.